please turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Romans 12, verse 11, as you're turning there, let me make a couple of remarks. Number one, uh, this week I will send out the newsletter that I promised to send to you last week regarding last week's sermon where we talked about walking by faith and being challenged in our faith. What does it look like? And I gave to you at least a few sort of self-examination, diagnostic questions to consider, to ask yourselves, like, where am I at in my faith? Where are some areas in my personal walk with the Lord that could use strengthening? And so I apologize that I didn't send that last week, but there's like about 12 or 13 questions. You might consider going through some of those questions. I'll send that this week. And then secondly is that next week we will be returning to the book of Acts, picking up in Acts chapter 8. But for today, we are in Romans chapter 12, verse 11. I'm in the wrong book. I'm in Corinthians. I'm like, that's not what the past is, but the first. Anyways, Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent to spirit. Serve the Lord. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning now, submitting our hearts and our minds to your precious word. Lord, help me to focus my energies in serving you through the preaching of your word. I pray, Father, that the meditations of my heart and my, the words that come out of my lips may be consistent with what your word says. And I do pray, we pray together, Lord, that you may bless us through the word and encourage and strengthen your precious saints. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to, before we continue in the book of Acts, I wanted to leave you with one more thing to consider as you go embark onto the new year, something that has been very much on my mind for the past several weeks, and that is the topic of zeal. In Romans, you have 11 chapters of wonderful gospel truths, and then Coming to Romans chapter 12, Paul in effect is saying, considering all these things, I therefore appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then we have many commands that come following Romans 12 verses 1 through 2. Again, almost as if in effect he is saying, considering all of these things, considering these gospel truths, these gospel indicatives, I appeal to you, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. And what's the focus? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. The gospel produces a people of action, a people who are motivated, a people who are driven by the gospel, driven by the Lord. And so in considering the topic of zeal this morning, I want to consider three different headings with you, three headings that really speak to the topic of zeal from three different angles. First is the goad, second is the spur, and thirdly, the haste. First, the goad. 
many of you know, a goad is an instrument used to drive cattle forward or in a particular direction. Goad can be something that drives a person to a particular action, stimulates someone to action. Someone typically who is, who is driven to a particular action can be characterized by an earnestness. Someone who is earnest is someone who is characterized by an, a kind of an, an intensity in their actions. There's a seriousness in their actions. There's a serious state of mind as they are striving after something. Let me give you a couple of examples. Exodus chapter 12, the Lord has just said that his angel of death was going to descend upon the land of Egypt, and then he institutes the Lord's Passover. And this is the manner in which they shall eat the Passover. Exodus 12, 11, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So what is the goad? What is the instrument that is driving the people of God to a particular action? It is the fact that the angel of death is coming and that the people of God are about to exit Egypt. And so he wants them to be in a state of readiness. In other words, do not eat the Passover as if you're going to bed, but be ready. Get ready to go and you shall eat it in haste. 1 Samuel 21, 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. It might be considered foolish for David to not have a sword or a weapon in hand, but here he is appealing to Ahimelech, Do you have any weapons? I didn't bring any with me. And it's not that he forgot his weapons, it's that he had no time to grab his weapons. What was the instrument that stimulated him to this particular form of action? It was the king's business. It was driven by the king's business. It was, this was important. This was urgent, so urgent that he did not have time to go back and get his sword or find his weapons. The king's business demanded haste. When considering the topic of zeal, it's not always the difference between a person of labor and a person who does nothing. But rather, it is a person, it is a difference between a person of activity and a person of activity who is driven and motivated. There's an intensity, there's a motivation behind his actions. A person of zeal is someone who is dressed for action. Luke 12, 35, Jesus says there, stay dressed for action and keep the lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once and when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those who servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. What a wonderful promise. A reward there is in that passage. It says, for those who are dressed for action and ready to receive the master, that the master will be so pleased that the master himself will have the servants recline at table and he will serve them. Right? But that's if they're dressed for action and they're ready to receive the master. 
Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Why? What is the, what, what's, the, what's the gold? What's, the, what's driving them to that particular action? Is the fact that the master is away and he's going to return. It's not a matter of if, but when. He is going to return. And the question is, will you be dressed for action? Will you be ready to receive the master when he returns? Not knowing when he's going to return. Right, if you're not in uniform. Right, if you, go, if you work at a place that's required you to be in some kind of uniform, but you go to your work without a uniform, it's, you're communicating to everyone, you're not dressed for work. You didn't come here to work. You're improperly dressed. Not only that, but your attitude is improper. The Christian, there's never an occasion the Christian is permitted to take off his uniform. We are to stay, stay dressed for action 24-7. We do not want to be the lazy servant that when the master comes, finds him undressed, not ready for action, because ready for action, dressed for action, communicates, I am ready to receive the master when he returns. I've been ready. I've been working. I've been eager for him to come. I've been keeping my lamp burning. And part of the meaning of the parable is kind of, it could be lost to our modern ears, because if we were expecting to host someone, and we call them up because we didn't know what time they were coming. We call them up, hey, what time are you coming? Oh, I'm going to be there pretty late. And you're like, ooh, well, how about I'll leave a couple lights on. I'll leave the key in the mailbox and you can just lay yourself in. Your room is over by the pastor kitchen to the right. Right, in that sense, we don't have to be dressed for action. We don't have to be ready to receive the host, especially if they, we decide that they're coming home too late and we want to go to bed. We just leave a light on. Right, for the servants, no, they needed to keep the lamps burning. There's no on and off switch here. Keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed for action because the master is going to come. Are you dressed for action? Are you ready to receive the master whenever he should come, whether it's today or tomorrow or in 10 years, whenever that comes? thing about a uniform is that uniforms are not always comfortable. But Christ Jesus does not dress us in his righteousness so that we can be comfortable. And sometimes you are uncomfortable. And sometimes you ought to be uncomfortable. Depending on the context, depending where you are, depending on who you're engaging with, you ought to be uncomfortable. But if you are always comfortable, especially in places or in contexts where you shouldn't be comfortable, then I would be concerned. You should never be concerned or comfortable with worldliness. We should never be comfortable with sin. We should never be comfortable in a context where there is great sin. To some degree, we should be and always have this perpetual sense of uncomfortability because we live in a world of worldliness. And we live in the world, but are no longer of the world.
Second, the spur. Someone of zeal is driven to particular actions, and we'll get to sort of the driving motivations behind our actions. What is the goad of the Christian? But now let us consider the spur, and I want to give you some examples of the spur giving particular characters in the scriptures. First, the spur of Phineas. Numbers 25, 6. This is after the people of God have committed great sin against the Lord and God brought about his judgment upon the people of God. And here they are as a congregation coming together. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman, a pagan woman, to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. A few lessons about zeal given this passage. Zeal is action. Zeal always comes with action. You cannot say that you're a person of zeal and never do anything. Right? Zeal always produces action. How can you tell that someone is zealous? In part, you can tell by their actions. Actions reveal zeal. And really, we have two people of zeal in the passage. We have the Israelite, the foolish Israelite man who took a Midianite wife, something forbidden by the Lord, and he's driven by particular actions, selfishly motivated. He takes this woman and says, in the sight of Moses, the leader of the people of God, in the sight of the entire congregation, this was happening while the entire congregation was weeping and lamenting and repenting to the Lord for what they had just done. In the sight of all this, here is this foolish man committing sin against the Lord, selfishly motivated, doing these things in the sight of all the people. And then in comparison or in contrast, we see the zeal of Phineas and what he did. One form of zeal made the wrath of God burn hot. And the other form of zeal turned that wrath of God away. Second, zeal is consumed with jealousy. It says that Phineas was filled with a jealousy. There's a wrong kind of jealousy and there's a right kind of jealousy. God is said in the scriptures to be a jealous God. It doesn't make him sinful. The reason we can say that God is a jealous God and his, and his not being in sin is because God is jealous for the things that are properly and rightly his. So when the people of God give themselves to the world, God becomes jealous for his people because they belong to him and they should not be giving themselves to the world. 
God is jealous for his own honor and his own glory because that is rightly his. We, the kind of jealousy that the, that the Bible forbids is the jealousy for those things that not, are not ours, that don't belong to us. But there's a right kind of jealousy that should characterize us in the right moments. So say, for example, someone is stealing the affections of your spouse. That's something you ought to be jealous about because you've covenanted in marriage with that person, with your spouse, and those affections rightly belong to you. And so you should be jealous when someone is stealing those affections. The word for jealousy here in the Hebrew is a word that can also mean zeal. What we read here is of a man who is possessed, possessed with his zeal, possessed with God's jealousy. It's the protecting of the honor and the name and the glory of God in the midst of the people. A person of zeal. We're here to consider godly zeal. We're here to consider Christian zeal, not worldly zeal. Worldly zeal can produce good things. Worldly zeal can also produce evil and sin and wickedness. But we're here to consider godly and Christian, Christ-like zeal. And the kind of zeal that Romans 12 commends is a kind of zeal that possesses a person with the things that God is jealous for. Thirdly, zeal can lead to radical actions. This was a radical action. Phineas saw this man. He rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man, and he slew them both. It's not that we need to be driven by similar actions. That's not what I'm saying at all. There's a difference in covenants here that we need to understand that we don't have time to consider. But what I'm saying is that Christian zeal might make you stand out. And sometimes, right, we might not want to stand out. Sometimes we might just want to blend in. But to be characterized by Christ-like zeal might mean that you do some things that make you stand out amongst the rest and perhaps draw unwanted attention from the world? Would you be ready for that kind of attention? Lastly, zeal is rewarded. We read later on that God actually rewards Phineas for his zeal. God loves to see a people for himself who are full of zeal who are motivated in their actions in pursuing the glory of Christ. And God rewards that zeal. Now that we consider the spurring of Peter, Second Peter 1.12, he says, there, I therefore intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Peter seeks to, in, he intends to, to rouse Christians up, to wake them up from slumber. And how does he do this? By reminding them. And what's the goal? What is driving him to this particular action? It is the fact that he knows that he doesn't have long life to live. His life is about to be snuffed out soon. And so he's driven to 
towards the church. He is driven to wake up any sleepy Christians that may be in the congregation. And how does he do this? By giving, him, giving them gospel indicatives. If you read the several passages before this one, he talks about how we've been saved. He talks about the glorious promises that we have in Christ Jesus. And these are intended to stir, to, to stir up the, the ocean of your mind, if that mind has been stilled. Let's just throw a little pebble here and there to cause a little bit of ripples. But he seeks to sort of toss a huge boulder into the ocean of your mind to cause a great tsunami to wake you up to the things of God. He's intending to rage those waters because it's possible for Christians to become drowsy, to become sleepy, so that they're not as animated to the things of God, so that they're not driven, so that they go about their lives as if life is just mundane and boring and uneventful and purposeless. The prayer and hope that this morning you may be stirred up to consider the things of Christ, to stir, to be stirred up, live your life for the glory of Christ. It's possible for Christians to be drowsy for some period of time, but I would be concerned if that's a perpetual state. I'd be concerned that perhaps you might not actually be really saved. If you're perpetually unconcerned or uninterested in the things of God. Thirdly, the spur of Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 10. Elijah says to the Lord, I have been very jealous for the Lord. The same word there that's used in the passage in Numbers concerning Phineas. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah was a man on the run. The queen was after his life. The soldiers were after his life. And though God later on made clear that he had reserved 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to other pagan gods, in his mind, according to his limited knowledge, Elijah thought that he was the only one left. The thing to learn about zeal, considering this, the, the example, the spur of Elijah, is that zeal can make one to stand alone. It can make one to stand alone. Would you be ready? Would you be willing to stand alone if friends and family members forsook Christ? Would you be ready? Would you be willing to stand alone if you were the only one to follow Christ? It's better to stand alone with Christ than to have a thousand friends and have God as your enemy. Fourth and lastly, I would be remiss if I did not at least mention the spur of Christ Jesus. John chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus says that we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. 
This was just moments before Jesus healed the man born blind, born blind for the glory of God and healed for the glory of God. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Because there's coming a time when the work will cease. Godly zeal is engaged in the works of God. There's an internal drive. There's a fire within that drives a person to continue to do the works of him who sent him. The speed that characterizes a godly man or godly woman is driven by the fire for the things of God. They're animated by the things of God. They're animated by the people of God. The flame of passion for the glory of God melts away any coldness like the warm rays of the sun melts the snow on the ground. So that if you feel yourself a bit cold this morning, give yourself to thinking deeply and meditatively on the things of Christ of what Christ has done. Consider what Christ has done through his zeal. We see nothing but actions in the life of Christ Jesus and preaching and teaching and discipling and healing. Even in his zeal led him to stand alone. his disciples came to a point where they no longer followed him. His zeal led to a radical action, namely his being crucified to a cross. And it was also that zeal that compelled Jesus to rise from the dead. And what was motivating Christ Jesus in all of these things? It was to do the works of of God the Father who sent him. Jesus himself says that what animates him, that what sustains him, his food, is to do the will of him who sent him. That's what energized him. And if Christ Jesus displayed such zeal in doing the very works of the Father, how can we also not be characterized by such zeal? How can we not want to be characterized by such zeal and working for the Lord. In addition to this internal motivation, the person of zeal is also driven by another motivation, and that takes us to third and lastly, the haste. Again, John 9, 4, Jesus says that we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. There's a passage that is in harmony with this passage, although it comes at a very different time. It comes before Christ, and this is coming from the great wise teacher in Ecclesiastes. He did not know Christ. He lived way before Christ. He had no comprehensive understanding of what the afterlife looked like. And he simply presented his book as one thinking from a secular perspective, and yet still, those words there are harmonious with what Jesus says. Ecclesiastes 9, 10, it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. In the teacher's mind, what was the goad 
that was driving him to write these words and that and he's intending to also be as a driving or motivating factor for those who would listen to him. It is the fact that death is coming. Death is coming. Therefore, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But when we consider John 9, 4 and other passages like it in the New Testament, when we consider what Christ Jesus has done for us, when we consider the great blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, we have another, we have a greater motivation to do our work with all our might, don't we? So that working is not just about earning a paycheck. So that parenting isn't just about how do I make it through the day. So that retirement is not just about not working. So that school and education is not just about reading books and taking notes and sitting in on lectures and taking exams. There are some things in life that are mundane. There are, and then there are other things that are not mundane, but they become mundane to us. But when we embrace this passage, when we try to do whatever it is our hand finds to do and do it with all our might, we ought to be driven by a greater motivation, that is that we are working for the Lord. And that drives us to zeal, so that we engage in our work with a different attitude and a different manner. We engage in our parenting in a different manner. We engage in our retirement in a different manner. We engage in our education in a different manner, in a different attitude, with a different heart. We engage all of life with a different attitude, with a different heart when we know that we are working for the one who made us in his image and saved us through the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to broaden your, your mind and give you this category that perhaps you might be aware of, but perhaps not ever put it into words. Matthew 25, 24, a passage that has sort of stuck with me for several weeks now. Matthew 25, 24, it's a parable. It's a parable of the talents, the master going away, but before he leaves, he gives talents to different servants based on the level of responsibility and how much they can be responsible for. And then if master finally returns and he calls them to account, Matthew 25, 25, 24, he also who had received the one talent from the master came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering, <clears throat> excuse me, where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? that you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> As I consider this passage, I thought it quite extreme 
or perhaps a bit exaggerated? Isn't it, isn't it an exaggerated response for the master to respond in the way that he did? Call him, you wicked and slothful servant. Is it an exaggerated outcome or punishment to cast the servant who he called worthless into the outer darkness? But it's not exaggerated. It's not extreme. He calls him a wicked and slothful servant. But he's not entirely slothful. He considered his master. He knew the kind of master he had. He was given one talent, and he didn't want to lose the talent. I've been trusted with his talent. If I keep it to myself, I, I might misplace it. I might lose it somewhere. I have to do something with it so that I can make sure that I have it when the master returns so he thinks of this plan. He goes, okay, I'm going to bury this somewhere, keep it safely so that even I don't lose it. So he goes to the yard, to the field, finds a place where he can remember, digs up a little bit, puts the coin on the ground, puts the earth back on the coin, and then when his master comes, he knows exactly where the talent is. He did engage in some activity, and he did give some forethought to his activity, and yet he's still considered to be a slothful and wicked servant. What was his sin? That he should be called such things. You see, what we have here is a case of lazy activity. It is the kind of activity that produces nothing. And that is his sin. His work produced nothing. It didn't produce anything. Unlike the other servants who did something with the talent and worked at it and was able to produce more, this servant, on the other hand, was actually very selfishly motivated. He was seeking to expend as little energy as possible while at the same time giving this appearance that he was working and to be found faithful. And he was in for a rude awakening when he met with the master. This is looking busy. If you were, if you've ever been a teenager and have had a part-time job, then you're probably guilty of this. Where you're doing your work. I, I used to work at Shaw's when I was 16. I was working in the produce department, and I'd always have something to do. But I, when I saw the manager coming from afar, I engaged in some work. I wanted to look busy. Why would you try to look busy? because you didn't want to be reprimanded, because you didn't want the manager to take you out of where you are and make you go do something else, especially something that you don't want to do, like going out in the snow in 10-degree weather collecting carts. So I'd rather just look busy to give the appearance that I'm doing something. Selfishly motivated, and it's not producing anything. This is what the servant is guilty of. And I mention this because I want us to be engaged in activity for the Lord, not just looking busy, but to be found faithful with the task and the responsibilities that God has entrusted to you so that you can produce something in return, so that you can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
by the way, slothfulness seems to be an indication of unbelief given the consequences that this servant received. But let me remind us that we are saved by faith in Christ Jesus alone and not by works. But on the other hand, we are, according to the Scriptures, rewarded by our works. And what I want for you and I is to maximize this life so that you can maximize your rewards in heaven. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even the very good works that we do today, according to this passage, they have been prepared beforehand. They have been predestined before the foundations of the world for you to do them. Now, I wholeheartedly believe in predestination that those who are saved have been elected before the foundation of the world. And at the same time, I do believe that no one will be saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to this passage, it would seem that there are particular works that God has given to each and every one of you to do. Works given uniquely to you. Works that only you can do. Perhaps given a particular kind of work. Perhaps it's based on a particular context. Perhaps it's based on a particular time. Perhaps it's based on the particular person you're doing the work for. There are some things that only you have been predestined to do and no one else. I do believe that those who are elected for salvation will ultimately be saved. And at the same time, I do believe that some people will not hear the gospel apart from you actually sharing that gospel. Consider that there might be people in your circles who not only need to hear the gospel, but God has placed you in their, in their circles so that they can hear the gospel through you. Jesus says we must work the works of him who sent us. Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There will come a time that these works will cease. Consider the things that you're doing today, whether in the church or whether outside of the church, whether it's for other people, whether it's for your spouse. There are many works today that will not transfer over into heaven. The work of parenting ceases when you enter into eternity. Marriage, which is a kind, a field of work, that ceases in heaven. The kind of work that you do for one another in the church, many of those things will not transfer over into heaven. For example, my preaching on Sunday mornings, that ceases in heaven. There's no need for pastors in heaven. I'm unemployed in heaven. There are many works that are, are done in this life. And there will be different works in heaven that are unique to heaven that no one can do on this earth. But there are many things that you are currently doing today that are going to be done, are going to cease in heaven. And this is why we ought to be engaged in the work that the Lord has called us to. 
because this is it. This is all we get. This is how we earn our rewards. Let us be animated for the work of God. Let us be animated for the things and responsibilities that God has called us to. Because night is coming when the works will cease. Spurgeon says we have a high calling of God in Christ Jesus and this must have the preeminence. Poor or rich, healthy or sick, honored or disgraced, we must glorify God. This is necessity. All else may be, this must be. We resolve, sternly resolve, and desperately determine that we will not throw away our lives on trifling objects, but by us God's work must and shall be done. Each man will do his own share, God helping him. May the ever-blessed Holy Spirit give us power and grace to turn our resolves into acts. Whatever your hand finds to do, whether it is in your work, whether it is in your home, whether it is in your marriage, whether it is in your parenting, whether it is in the life of the church, whatever capacities or bandwidth that God has given to you, whether it's just a work and a season where you can all you can do is be devoted to prayer, engage in that work with all of your might, animated for the glory of God, bringing glory to Jesus Christ animated by the great blessings that we have in the gospel. May the Lord bless each and every one of us for the work that he's currently given unto us and that he has called us to do.